I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. In today's program, we had a chance to visit with strip-tiller Larry Tombaugh on his Streeter, Illinois farm to learn more about some of the biological applications he's making on his cropping operation. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. And a reminder that by subscribing, you'll be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series, Agronomy Matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, strip-tiller Larry Tombaugh has enjoyed his share of rewards that come with the risk of experimenting with fertilizer application. The sixth-generation farmer began no-tilling more than 40 years ago and transitioned to strip-till, seeking higher corn and soybean yields through targeted fertilizer placement and a drier seedbed. Larry acknowledges that he's not a purist when it comes to strip-till, but after more than 20 years in the practice, he feels a little bit of strategic tillage in his dark soils in northern Illinois is a good thing. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we chat with Larry about his strip-till origins and a detailed look at some of the ways he supplements his system with biological additives to improve soil health and yields. I grew up on a dairy farm. We were milking 100 cows when I was young. Started driving a tractor, you know, the usual thing when I was six, and baling hay by myself when I was 10 and all that stuff. So it's kind of in my blood. But um, our family had a long history of... Uh, trying to be conservators of the land. You know, we had a lot of, obviously with dairy cows, we had a, a lot of alfalfa, but we also had idle acres, and we had just a plethora of uh, pheasants. People came here all the time. But uh, even more than that, our family was on the cutting edge, I think, trying to conserve, but also push the boundaries of what we were doing. And so my, uh, my great uncle, I had a seed corn company, back when uh, Lester Feaster was started, and then he was a PAG, a Feaster Associated Grower, and they had hybrids. And uh, my grandfather relished in taking people out and showing the difference in the hybrids. He knew exactly where the row was, and this was cross open pollinated corn, and this was a hybrid corn. And so he would go over to the open pollinated, and he'd pull it up and show people the roots, and he'd have one young buck right there and say, yeah, yeah pull up that. The hybrid corn, you couldn't pull it up. It had so much more root system, it's like. But that guy would tug and tug trying to you know, pull it up. But early on, they saw the, the importance of that. And then my dad won a, a corn growing contest. Well, first off, my grandfather uh, broke 150 bushels to the acre in the 1940s, which was pretty remarkable. Back when, a little before that, the national average was like 45 bushels to the acre or something. That my dad was in a contest in 1958 and hit 207 bushels the acre. And he was trying, you know, this new stuff called anhydrous ammonia. Mm. And uh, it had been in uh, alfalfa brome sod for, for five years. And so it was really good stuff and the hybrids and everything. But uh, 
all along our family hasn't been afraid to try new things and I think that's that's really important. I tell people change is good if it's an improvement, but don't just change for for not. Um. So I went to college, came back milking cows on the weekends, and then had a lot of opportunities to go elsewhere, but always wanted a farm. When my dad passed away in 94, I was able to take over the farm. We started strip tilling from then on. And I didn't have a big enough tractor, so we always had neighbors that did it with the dry fertilizer and everything. I actually tried uh, no-till when I came home from college in 1973. And it was really good for my neighbors to get a good laugh out of all that because we were way too ahead of the curve. You know, I, I rented a Alice Chalmers no-till, quote-unquote, no-till planter from the, the uh, conservation department, from the, yeah, conservation department. And uh, I tried Gramoxone to try and burn everything down, and we didn't have seeds, we didn't have herbicides, and it was just way too far ahead of its time. But then when I... Uh, was able to take over in 94, we went to strip till, and then we were kind of minimum till, chisel plowing and stuff like that. And uh, now it's really evolved quite a bit. Um, we're still doing strips, but we don't put any fertilizer in them, if we can. And we're doing almost everything with the planter. In my uh, conservation safety program, we have some things in there. We're still strip tilling, but we don't put any phosphorus on the ground. You know, it has to be incorporated. Cover crops are a main part of that thing too. And I think what we've seen over the years, now that I've got, added some things, which basically are soil amendments, we've really enhanced that. The best I've ever done on corn was like 284. And that was the year that I spoke at the no-till conference in Springfield. And we have hit 80 bushel beans, but we're working on uh, blowing past that. But in my account, we have customers with the, the nutrient management that are getting high yields, and I hope to prove how to make high yields, but more importantly to me is the return on investment. We think that we know when uh, corn and soybeans, our, our agronomist has mapped out the life cycle of corn and soybeans, so we can tell you exactly by growing degree days what nutrient need at each time in its life cycle. And we had a a plot down at Hecker, Illinois, which is about 40 miles southeast of the Arch in St. Louis in 2017. And it was really an eye-opener. It was very poor timber soil. It had 5.3 inches of rain. And I went to the field day on August 15th, and it was a disaster. It's 30 acres of corn, and on the south side, we had four different hybrids. We had a Stein, Hogemeyer, and a Bex, and, and one other one. And we had just used basic plow down. That poor side, you know, poor timber soil, 5.3 inches rain, averaged 49 to 63 bushels. It was a train wreck. But then the next grouping, we had uh, starter fertilizer and different things, and it was up to about 105 bushel average. And then we had three rescue treatments that were timed at critical points when the plant needed, needed the nutrients. Our whole thing is that if you have a basic uh, amount of uh, fertility, the plant will tell you what it needs when it needs it. You have to anticipate it, but based on growing degree days. And so in the first rescue treatment, we got at the average up to about 165 bushel the acre. Like, whoa, this is amazing. Poor timber soil, 5.3 inches of rain. The next grouping was 205 bushel average. And in the last group, when we had the top hybrid set the record for Monroe County at 241 bushel the acre.
in doing that, you know, we targeted it, but we, we didn't spend as much money as a lot of people that are throwing 300 pounds of DAP and 300 pounds of potash every year and putting too much acid in the soil and the microbes don't like it. They'll work with it as much as they can, but they really need to have compatible pro products that uh, they can work with and stuff. So, so was that the trial plot? Was that, that a strip till trial plot? No, that was just conventional tillage. Okay. That was okay. conventional tillage. The um, reason I like strip tillage and basically no-till is that uh, you know, it really disturbs less the microbes. And right now we're really into a, a biological and energy company as nutrient management goes. Microbes, when you study them, they don't like light. They don't like to be exposed uh, you know, and have their houses torn up every year. <laughs> so you know, they develop relationships, symbiotic relationships among themselves. And whenever you till it, you break up those relationships. Uh, one of the products that we're, well, one of the products we're really excited about is uh, a vermicompost tea. A lot of companies are coming out with biologicals, and we had some before we had this, and they would tout, you know, I've got four, four strains of microbes, I got 36 strains of microbes, I got such and such. This tea is actually made from organic dairy manure from five organic dairies in Oregon. And they collect that and then they lightly compost it because it's really important to control the temperature so you don't burn up a lot of microbes. Uh, so they, they rotate it and stuff, but they lightly compost it and then they run it through worms. And worms have such a good effect in the fact that they can concentrate seven times the nutrient density in there, but they still maintain the microbial activity. So we, uh, we shipped that in and I bought a, a tea brewer that's a big 500 gallon hot tub that you'll see here shortly with 16 bubblers in it. So you drop in four canisters with about 20 pounds in each, and then you put nine pounds of a catalyst in there and you bubble it for 18 to 24 hours. Our agronomist first had it, he was looking under the microscope and he had 350 to 1,000 different families of colony forming fungal units that he could identify. We thought that was really good. But then uh, we work very closely, that fellow's name is Ben, and Ben teaches uh, postdoctoral work at the five ag colleges out in California. And he first met these people uh, back when at our booth out in Tulare, up walks uh, two gentlemen in suits, and uh, they looked like they were from the Far East sort of thing or something. He got talking to them, and come to find out these were two of the presidents of the five ag colleges in California. They were pretty impressed with what he had to say and he, he, they said, well, we don't need your money. We work with the Carnegie Foundation. We got $7.2 billion, and our offices are on Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, but we really need to have your expertise and your interfacing with farmers. So from that time forward, we've worked with them. Ben actually was out in, they gave him an office out in, uh, in the bay there, and he was at the office one day about three years ago, I guess now, and they said, hey, Ben, you need to take this call. He said, really, what's, you know, nobody calls me. Well, it was Mrs. Steve Jobs. And all the oak trees on her estate in Palo Alto were dying. So he took a, a technician out there and they did uh, tissue samples. He came home and he put back a, a brew of this compost tea and some of the micronutrients that he's developed and some of the packages and some other things I'm going to talk about. And they injected them into the trees. And three weeks later, all the trees started leafing out again. Now, it might have just been you know, time for them to relief, but we're gonna take credit for it. But what, we've, what we're finding is that we can actually reduce the cost that farmers have to spend 
uh, and maintain or increase the yield and actually be better for the soil health in doing that. Well, they, they called Ben and they, uh, sometime later and said, well, you know, we did an, a DNA test on your, your compost tea. And I'm sorry, Ben, you thought you had 350. You have over 4,000 distinct families of colony-forming fungal units. Each milliliter, which a milliliter isn't too big, has between 50 billion and 100 billion bugs. We've got over 4,000 and we're dealing with companies or, or different farmers that are saying, well, you know, I got this biological from this company, I got this biological. We know that all of ours are gonna be compatible. And you're starting in, you got the, the Hagens and the McCoys shooting at each other because you got incompatible. Uh, and so. so we've been using this compost tea we're using it in furrow and foliar and uh, actually in residue digesters. When, you, when it comes, when it comes uh, out of the batch and we, we strain it, it has about 92% aerobic, I'm just going to say bacteria or microbes, 92 and 8% anaerobes. But if you let it sit for a while without oxygen, a lot of the aerobe, aerobes die and the anaerobes increase, and they will do that. But you've only got about 60 to 72 hours before you decimate the, the whole system. So when we're doing a residue digester, we actually let it sit a little bit because anaerobes are the ones that tear, up, uh, tear down the, the residue, like corn stalks and stuff. You got such a high calcium to nitrogen ratio that you have to add more nitrogen. Otherwise, the microbes are going to rob it out of the soil. So in our residue digester, we'll, uh, actually, we won't put the tea in with the nitrogen, but we put nitrogen, a humic acid, sugar, and water, and then do the the biological sector. We'll get back to our discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast series possible, and welcome in Dr. Ray Acevedo, former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture. In this week's technology tips from Dr. Ray, he discusses the value of taking full advantage of precision capabilities on your equipment to maximize ROI. Most of the farmers that I've dealt with now, especially over this past year, and this has been the funny thing, whether I was in Kansas or part of the Midwest or even Australia, I go to Australia a lot, mate. Trust me. All right? Victoria. All right? They all said the same thing to me. They're kind of getting tired of having to mess around with all this data thing and all this technology. And what they want to do is do what they love, which is just focus on farming. And so as soon as we start addressing those needs, we're going to have a lot of success. So why is this important to you as a strip-till farmer or any type of farmer? These silos and manual processing limit how much this technology can really benefit you. And then your ROI or return on investment is much lower or it's not even realized. I have so many guys that have variable rate technology on their seeder and on their sprayer and have never used it. So I think you pay enough money already as it is, the tech should just work. And there's a lot of guys and gals out there who share that kind of sentiment. So what's changing? That was a little depressing towards the end there, wasn't it? It was like, man, this is really going downhill real fast for us. Things are changing. There is definitely a looking up. What really limited clouds and all that connectivity was we didn't have devices in the field, we had cellular issues, but now we're gonna be seeing a lot of new hardware released where it aims to solve these connectivity issues to where you're always integrated with the cloud 
but also enabled machine-to-machine -machine communication. Well, thanks, Ray. And let's get back to the program now and hear more from Larry Tombaugh as he breaks down the biological benefits of his approach to nutrient application. The basic thing that we start our program lots of times is our humics, our dry humates. We kind of think this is the core and then some of the other amendments we put in. So I used to work with a company that we got our humates from uh, Mesa Verde mines out in New Mexico, which is a well-known mine and it comes from an area where they had the glaciers, but they had a lot of trees and deposits and so it has a lot of impurities. And it's about 65% pure humates. Well, when we left that company, we, uh, source out of Alberta, Canada, which we found to be the best source of humates. Humates, just to give you an idea, they look like coal, but they won't burn. They have a cation exchange capacity of over 600, and they have about 65 micronutrients. But the biggest thing about them is that they have both positive and negative charges. So when you put them in the soil, they actually have the ability to break the bonds that are tying up all the nitrogen, phosphorus, potash, magnesium that's in the soil. If you look at our prairie soils out here, we have about 9,000 pounds to the acre of nitrogen. So why are, we, why are we adding more nitrogen? I know some companies are coming out with, and we have one too now, that's going to help to make uh, nitrogen, but other uh, plants that can take more nitrogen out of the air. If the air is 65% nitrogen, why can't we just harvest it there? And we are to some extent doing that. But by putting this, uh, this humate down, uh, we're able to break those bonds down. And in doing so, not only do we have... Uh, more available nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash, but when you break the bonds that are holding the magnesium, magnesium is what causes compaction. So when you take the compaction out, you can spread 100 to 200 pounds to the acre on, and that wet hole won't hold water again. We like the, the stuff from Alberta because it's 85% pure, 90% sol uh, soluble, and it's a lot cheaper. We're, we're selling that product out of Canada for $600 an acre, whereas there are some companies that are selling the Mesa Verde Inferior product for $600 a ton versus $900 to $1,700 a ton. So we like that. And from those products, uh, we also extract a liquid humic, which is 24%, and we use that whenever we're using nitrogen because it will stabilize nitrogen. It puts a carbon bond around the nitrogen molecules. But when it's shipped to us at 24%, it is so hot that there's no bonding sites left. So you need to dilute it down. I'd like to dilute it half and half to make it 12%. Uh, some of our things that our agronomist uses, he puts them at 18%. But you have to get more water in there so there's more bonding sites. The other component that comes out of the humic is fulvic. And fulvic is what they use in chemotherapy. It has a real low molecular value. And it can take medicine right through the cell wall, but it also does that for herbicides. So we've had instances where we had just two-tenths of an ounce of fulvic acid added to a full rate of power max, took out four-foot-tall water hemp and three-foot-tall corn without any yellowing. So we think that's a good thing. So going back to the, <laughs> to the compost, oh, okay. um, just it was curious, I mean, because uh, I think that's, that's really interesting in terms of... Uh, some of the uh, results, you know, that you can see. I was, I was curious, you know, what have you kind of learned to this point, you know, with with mm -hmm. that product? You know, what are some of the, you know, well, we've had, yeah, we've had some good results. Of course, we're putting it in furrow. 
with in in my inferral package that I use on my planter has about 10 components in it. Um, so we're not sure we, yet that we can break out and singulate the results, but we did have um, a test last year where we put two gallons to the acre on soybeans at uh, R3, and two gallons doesn't cost very much. It's like four or five bucks, and we had a 6.2 bushel increase. So just like in the Humix, uh, I put Humates in my planter and put them in the, the planter box and we're putting 10 to 15 pounds to the acre. That cost me five bucks and we, where we've tested it, we get 5.2 to 5.8 bushel increase. So anytime that I can spend four, four or $5 and get 40 or $50, I'm all over it. But back to your question then, uh, we're still you know, trying to see if we can do more experiments and isolate just what that component does give us. Mm -hmm. We know that it's, it's helping, but uh, I can't tell you exactly you know, how much my return on investment is and whether it's successful all the time. Partly because we're doing that in conjunction with some other kind of neat products. One is called Sea Crop, where they actually harvest seawater. They take a thousand gallons of seawater, take the salt out of it, and condense it down into a gallon. So you've got all those nutrients from a thousand gallons, and it has about 65 different nutrients, including micronutrients. And I would just say parenthetically that we have found that micronutrients, while they're not a lot of amount needed, they're very important. We have seen as little as one drop of essential oils per acre make a difference. That's one drop out of a, an eyedropper. And you can, you can tell the difference. So when you can have the sea crop that has all those nutrients, and it also has biological activity because it's got some of the uh, exudates that are in there from seaweed and stuff. And then we add a, an activator, which was kind of surprising. This is the first year with this product, and the activator's in a plastic bottle, but when I take off the lid, it'll shock you. <laughs> <laughs> because that activator has cobalt, moly, and nickel in it. And uh, of course, uh, cobalt's one of the things you put in batteries, but a plastic bottle, I, I, it surprised me every time. I take it out of a plastic bottle and it would shock me. It's like, whoa, this is, this is really something. Uh, the other product that we like to talk about is called MaxiCrop, and it has a simul similar kind of uh, arrangement in the fact that they harvest seaweed along the coast of Norway, 3,000 3, miles. They cut about five inches off each year. So it takes about five years before they make the 3,000 mile loop and start over again. But uh, they do some things with that. They process it very quickly with low heat and they're able to maintain about the same, about uh, 80 nutrients in that. And we're getting good results with that too. Sugar, uh, we're using a, a sugar that's uh, an MMTS, Teva sugar. Uh, developed by a fellow down in Missouri, and it's been winning university tests right and left. It has about four different forms of sugar in there. The thing that's been giving us problems with some people's uh, sugars is that, for whatever reason, some people are putting sulfuric acid in it, and it's really screwing up the works. I guess what I'd like to mention is that there's some really important things about using these products, and of course a lot of it has to do with mixing order and doing jar tests. If you go on uh, YouTube uh, under the Corn Warriors, and I've got the, I'll give you the address to the link to it, but Brad Forkner, my cohort, did a, a jar test, 
And it, it really is an eye-opener because you need to have the, keep the pH right, you need to have the mixing order right. And we've had so many times when people uh, you know, got things out of order and you think it wouldn't make any difference, but it really does make a difference. You know, they have to be compatible in the right order. And uh, even if the compatible products out of order uh, makes a big difference. Thank you, Larry, for sharing some experiences on how you've evolved your on-farm laboratory with nutrient management experiments. Again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 series. And again, for Larry Tombaugh, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.